we're going. As some of you may hear, um, in my audio tests, I was dealing with like this echo issue. You might be hearing a little bit of that right now. I tried troubleshooting it and it got to the point where the stream is so close that it's like either cancel the stream to keep working on this or just have a, a video up that has, you know, subpar audio. And, uh, well, I'd rather just keep going. So, so here we are, <clears throat> uh, I'm Mike Winger and I'm here to try to answer your questions biblically, or at least, at least minimally to help you be pointed to the scriptures in you trying to answer your own questions. In fact, I should say minimally, really, that's that's the, the goal that there is in this sort of process that we do on the Q&As on Fridays. Trying to help you learn to think biblically about everything doesn't mean learn to think like Mike about everything, but rather learn the process of stopping, you know, and, and, and asking the question of what does scripture say about this issue or that issue? So let me give you an example. Our first question for today it comes in on the topic of yoga pants, <laughs> so so I know. But um, but this is exactly what we mean by think biblically. If you can't ask a question like this and work through it biblically, then what's the point, right? Because this is practical life. This is real life stuff. Okay, here's the question uh, from uh, Jonathan Youngs, who says, ladies on the worship team sometimes wear yoga pants and ripped jeans. I think that goes against the Romans 14 principle of not causing your brother to stumble. What do you think? Let me offer a couple preliminary remarks and then I want to look at Romans 14 because this question is not just about yoga pants like as a category. It's about whether Romans 14 applies to what women should or shouldn't wear or men for that matter on the worship team. And um, that's what I'm actually really interested in talking about because that's where the, the, the biblical thinking comes in. This is where Jonathan's saying, hey, uh, I think this biblical principle in Romans 14, I'll, I'll sh let me show you guys the verse real quick. Here we go. Verse 21 says, um, it is good neither to eat or eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. And this is taken as a principle. Hey, um, by the way, do you, you see, I, I, I can't even get, look, long story short, right? got a new computer, it broke, had to go back to an old computer, got the new computer back after Dell fixed it. Dell's customer service is really terrible, by the way. <laughs> Just, they used to be good, not anymore. Um, and then uh, I, I can't get all my graphics going. So down there, you can see the, the even the improved version of the BibleThinker.org advertisement right there. Okay, um, <clears throat> let's, let's dig into this then. Can we say that this verse is supposed to apply to what other people are allowed to wear because by stumble, we mean I am, I am enticed towards lust by that clothing. Therefore, my sort of internal meter of feeling lustful will indicate whether you can wear this or wear that. All right. So, so let me, that's what I really want to talk about. But first I'll just address sort of some of the more obvious stuff, the elephant in the room things before we get to all your questions in the live chat, which is um, yoga pants in general. Um, yoga pants in general, uh, I am, I am of the impression, okay, that, the idea of wearing yoga pants um, in 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 public in in large group gatherings, especially like a, a, a gathering where you just have a number of people that are there for like say a church gathering, that that is inappropriate. Okay, that's my opinion. Okay, maybe I'm wrong on that, but that is definitely I'm persuaded of that, and I I find it difficult to find a way around that. Um, same thing with wearing super tight jeans. Basically, the the idea here I'm going to suggest is uh, biblically speaking, we don't have clear indications of what what constitutes um, modesty in clothing 
There's just, just aren't, there isn't a clear delineation of wear this, not that, cover this part, don't worry about that part. We don't have real clear stuff there. There is a statement in, in, in the scripture about the, the priest that in order to cover his nakedness, he's going to be wearing something, in a tu- uh, not a, the tunic thing, but uh, basically he's going to wear something that, that goes from his from the top of his hips down to down to like just above his knees. And that area is going to be covered in order to cover his nakedness. And so some will say, you know, minimally to cover nakedness, you have to be covered from the top of your hips down to like above your knees. And that might be a good, good principle. I just personally find it hard to recognize whether like, is God really trying to indicate to us in that verse that that entire covering is required for nakedness to be covered? Could it be that this is covering more than what, or, or is, I have a num- number of other questions about that. So that might be a good rule to go with. I, I feel like I can't be super confident about that, even though <laughs> I would think, you know, that seems like a pretty smart thing. I, yeah, like I would intuitively want to agree with that. I'm just not sure that it's super clear biblically and I don't want to stretch the text. That's all I'm saying. Um, <clears throat> but let's suggest that uh, here's a principle I think I think we can apply. And it goes like this. If there's a, bo- a part of your body that you don't want uncovered completely, then you probably don't want to wear clothing that completely follows the, the contours of your skin on that same area of your body, right? Because the intention of covering is to obscure and the intention of clothing that is tight fitting around those areas is to unobscure. It's to, it's to basically become second skin. So if you're wearing like second skin clothing, not just anywhere, not on your forearm, but, but on an area of the body that is intended to be covered to avoid immodesty or nakedness, then yeah, that would be inappropriate. That's what yoga pants seem to do unless you cover them with a dress or something like that. And so um, I, I, I'm a prude in that I, I think I'm right here in that I think that even bikinis, even at the beach, are inappropriate. And, and men wearing Speedos, even at the beach, is an inappropriate piece of clothing. This is my own understanding of this. But I don't throw this on everybody else with a real strict judgment on there because there's enough gray in it that I, I don't want to cause division over the topics. That being said, um, there's so much to talk about in this, but but this isn't a video on modesty and yoga pants. It's a video, it's a Q&A. So let me get to the specific question that Jonathan's asking, which is, how does this apply to Romans 14, the Romans 14 principle? In particular, does my personal desire, if, if I look at a woman and I go, when she wears that, I lust after her. Does that mean she can't wear that clothing? Like, does that mean that, that it's, the, it's the godly and loving thing for her to not wear that clothing? And I think this is not the intention of Romans 14. I think this is where I'm stretching the text beyond its meaning. So we're going to read Romans 14, the whole chapter, in order to understand what it's saying in context. Because that's the only way you think biblically is if you read large portions of scripture. So here we go, Romans 14, starting in verse 1. Let's look at what he means by don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. The weak in the faith, I'll, I'll spoiler alert, this is going to be a super fast overview, so I'm not going to build my case for everything I share. I have a verse-by-verse study through Romans 14 online. You can check that out. I'll link it down below after this stream. But the one who's weak in the faith here is the person who feels guilty about doing things that God is okay with. So it's a person who say, says, I feel bad eating pork, even though I know that all things are clean, but so I just can't eat it. I'm weak in the faith. This is this is interesting because that person would not think they're weak in the faith usually. They would find themselves to be strong. They would think they're, they're powerful. They're very faithful to the Lord, but they're actually weak in the faith. 
that's a shocking thing, but I'll move forward. Uh, but not to, not to disputes over doubtful things. Don't sit here and, and make your agenda to, to fix all the issues where they have a conscience, where they can't listen to that music and they can't eat that thing and they can't go over to this thing. Don't make this a point of debate. That's an important principle. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who's weak eats only vegetables. Again, we're talking about food here primarily. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. And this is interesting because what it shows is that God's main concern here is unity of the brethren over over totally tertiary issues. Like, I eat only vegetables. Why did they do that? Because the meat was being offered to idols in the marketplace. It wasn't that they were vegetarians. It's that meat was being offered to idols in the marketplace and they felt convictions like, ah, I just can't, I just can't do it. I can't eat that stuff. And someone else goes, ah, it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. I'm not participating in idolatry. I can eat that stuff. I don't care. There, there's a restaurant that I enjoy going to that that um, has idols in the restaurant. And I feel okay. I, I feel I can eat in, in faith there. But I wouldn't bring some people there because I think it would stumble them. This is an example of that situation. All right. Um, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who eats judge him who eats for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another. All right, now we're moving into a new a new subject. First, okay, don't argue about these issues. Just let each be convinced in his own mind. God will be the ultimate judge. And now let's add an, another issue in there, which is the days, the worship of uh, the observance of certain days. One person esteems one day above another, say Passover or a birthday or some other sort of like religious holiday. Um, let each be fully convinced in his own mind, perhaps even the Sabbath. He who, d- who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. Remember how the Lord said, observe the Sabbath. That's under the Old Testament law. New Testament Christians are not told to do that, but many did anyways. And he's like, hey, if you want to observe it, go ahead and observe it. Observe it to the Lord. I rest on the Sabbath, Mike. I think it's very important. Go for it. Do it unto the Lord and you will glorify God in that. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. Someone says, well, I don't really celebrate that. I don't make a big deal of Christmas, a big deal of, say, even even Sunday um, as, as a Sabbath day of rest. Um, so I don't observe the day. I still gather with the believers. That's separate from what day it's on. You you gather with the believers on a regular basis. That's very important. Um, see, I said Sunday, by the way. The Sabbath really is Saturday. A lot of people, especially in America, think of it as Sunday. I know it's actually biblically Saturday. I'm just trying to meet you guys where you're at. Um, but you can actually not observe it to the Lord. He who eats, eats to the Lord. You're eating that meat and can eat it to the Lord. He he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives God thanks. Notice that nothing here yet is about clothing. It's not about clothing. In fact, it's about personal convictions, about tertiary issues, like celebrating and observing a day, eating versus not eating certain kinds of foods. Like this almost might come to boycott issues too. Nowadays, an application could be boycotts. I think you should boycott that Starbucks. And someone else goes, yeah, well, I, I, I like the Starbucks. I give God thanks for, for, for the, the coffee I'm drinking from Starbucks. And I think both can be fully convinced in their own mind. Don't despise each other. Don't judge each other. This is where you need to chillax and recognize that God is the authority over them, not you. Your convictions can run you. They're not supposed to run everybody else. That's one of the ideas here. Um, for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. That's such a beautiful to be on a t-shirt. Um, therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's 
For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Uh, or the dead and the living, excuse me. Uh, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? This is interesting. The the judgment and the contempt are the two risks when you have someone who has, say, more liberty versus someone who has less liberty on these issues. On the things they eat, the places they celebrate, the places they go. You're going to say, one will feel like they're judging the other. The, the, the one who doesn't feel, I can't listen to that music, I can't eat that food. I'm judging you because I feel like the fact that I can't means you shouldn't either. Then the person who is doing this stuff, they look down at you and they go, oh, you you prude, you legalist, you Pharisee, and they're despising them. This is exactly what God doesn't want us to be doing. Uh, this is a great risk when you have different convictions. It's a great maturity to live and exist with Christians in a community where you don't all have the same convictions. This is a healthy thing. This is something we should shoot for on secondary topics here. Tertiary, really. Uh, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, God's going to deal with them. Okay, You don't need to, to, to analyze every move of every person. Really focus on your own issues. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account to himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Don't judge people because they have more liberty than you. But rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. Now he moves to a new issue. Okay, he, he's given people permission to, to eat, don't eat. Observe the Sabbath, don't observe the Sabbath. You can do what you want on these issues and follow your conscience as long as you're doing it unto the Lord. As long as your heart motive is to live unto God. Now he's going to move on to a sep separate topic. Don't cause someone else to stumble. And now it's a new issue, a new thing to think about. And this is where, it talk, where yoga pants comes in. <laughs> All right, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. This is very likely Paul referring to um, some of the statements of Jesus in the Gospels themselves where he talks about this sort of thing. And so it's kind of cool to hear Paul e echoing the Gospels uh, in his writings. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Ah, we'll talk about how that applies to yoga pants. But here's the thought. If you're eating food and you're thinking, oh, I feel like I'm compromising in my walk with God by eating this food, then you better not eat the food. Because while the food itself is not the problem, you violating your conscience is. So don't violate your conscience. This is going to be important. This is why you don't need to, con let's say you have a friend who goes, I can't listen to any secular music. And you think, well, you could. I mean, technically, it's not, not inherently evil. Like, it's music. Like, you just listen to some, like, instrumental music. You know, that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not Christian, but it's also fine. You don't need to convince them of that. Because you're not trying to get them to violate their own conscience. Because if they think it's unclean, to him it is unclean. There is a rebellion that's going on and you're stirring that in them. You're encouraging them to it. Even though for you, listening to that music is not rebellion at all. For if your brother is grieved because of your food, you're no longer walking in love. Now he's See, now he's not talking about what you eat in on your own in private. He's talking about what you eat in front of your brother and the effect it has on him. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. So I had a friend who came out of a very worldly um, rock and roll lifestyle. He was a drummer and he couldn't listen to any secular music uh, to the point where when when in church, they uh, at my old church, they would take uh, music uh, back in the day. They hadn't done this in years, but they would take music and rewrite the words and play a very popular secular song, but with new Christian words to redeem it was the idea. 
And he had to leave when this happened. He had to get up and leave when this happened because to him, that music was associated with the lifestyle of drugs and, and sexual immorality that he was involved in when he was part of that music. And just hearing those songs, it really stirred that up in him. And so he would get up and leave. Now, he did not judge the church for what they were doing. He just knew he couldn't be part of it. That's what this is talking about. Hey, if your brothers grieve because of your food or your music, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, now we're going to get down, get down to it and then I'll apply it to yoga, yoga pants. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. The work of God here is in the person that you care about that is weak while you are strong. You don't want to be eating the things that cause them to stumble when you're in their presence. All things indeed are pure. But it is evil for a man, for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat nor drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not, not from faith is sin. Um, and then later he goes on to talking about... Um, this continues the same idea. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. It continues on the same idea. I hope you get the idea, but notice how none of this was about lust and none of this was about what women should wear being limited by what men men's desires are. Um, there's an element of that that there's there's a truth there, right? One of the reasons, say, and, and men more struggle with this than women, although it's on both sides for sure. But in scripture, we do have more of the admonitions about modesty are given more to women and the admonitions about dealing with lust are given more to men. Uh, there's definitely crossover, but there's an unequal amount in which we each struggle with those things. Um, anyway, that's that you call me sexist and. Um, OK, <laughs> okay. I, at, at some point you have to deny reality to not be called sexist in our culture. And, and that's just not going to happen. Um, so. I would not apply Romans 14 to the yoga pants issue exactly. And, and here's the, re not for the reasons that I see in your question, Jonathan, here's why. Limiting women from wearing clothes that cause any man in the house to feel lust is so broad that women would be limited to wear like burlap sacks. And even some guy out there would be like, well, I'm burlap really gets me going, you know, and, and then they couldn't even wear that. It's too heavy of a burden to place the lust of man on the shoulders of women. It's far too heavy of a burden. And so I think that this is different than Romans 14 because Romans 14 is talking about activities you, per, you participate in, not just clothes you wear, but things you do that you're encouraging them to do. Oh, I can enjoy an occasional glass of wine, but my friend who's a former alcoholic, he can't. And so when I'm around him, I won't drink wine for his sake, unless you know it won't stumble him, you know it won't offend him, you know it won't be a problem. But if you know it might, you, you won't do that. You know, if I, my friend in the car who had this secular music issue, I wouldn't turn the radio on and play secular music for him because why would I do that to him? It's, you know, I'm making him participate in something that, that he can't do. It's different with lust because lust is, um, 
something that is where I'm the only one participating in it effectively when I lust after a woman. She's not participating in that with me. So I, I think it's too much of a burden. And the danger of using Romans 14 with what clothes people can wear on stage, there's other reasons to limit the clothes being worn. It should be modesty. But modesty is not the same rule as Romans 14. Modesty has nothing to do with it. That's a different question, a different discussion. And I don't think yoga pants pass the modesty test, in my opinion. Um, but I wouldn't apply Romans 14 to it because it's simply not about that kind of issue. And when you have a whole community of people where you have 150, 1,000 people, and you start to believe that if if two of them, one of them, three of them don't like something that's happening on stage, then that thing can't happen on stage, you start to turn into oppressors of the people that are in ministry. And I want you to, it, it's just this unbridled um, limitations that are going to be thrown out on all these people. And I don't think that's the heart of Romans 14 at all. So I, that would be my response to that question. Um, yeah, yoga pants, uh, basically rev clothing that's meant to be skin tight around the parts that are meant to be covered. That seems inherently wrong to me. And I would, I would, I would continue to say that until someone gives me a logical reason other than, well, everyone does it, Mike. <laughs> In our culture, they all do it because the Bible frequently rips on whole cultures of people for being really messed up. And so we just can't use the principle of cultures says it's okay. It's not enough. All right, we'll go to question two from Jonathan from Uganda, who says, why was it necessary for Jesus to be fully divine in regard to our salvation? Wayne Grudem states, only someone who is the infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of all those who would believe in him. Do you agree? And are there any other reasons stated in scripture? Okay, I, I love and respect Wayne Grudem. I don't know if I agree with this statement, though. Um, now, maybe I don't understand his reasoning for it. So I, I reserve the right to have a second thought about it, right? But let's read it again and ask this one question. Is this a reason why Jesus had to be divine? He's, it says, only someone who is the infinite God could bear the full penalty for all the sins of the, all those who would believe in him. Um, I don't know that that's true, that the, that the deity of Christ is required for him to be the one who bears the sin of the world. In my opinion, it's the humanity of Christ that's required. This is why he became human. Uh, he had to become human in order to bear the sin. And so Adam is a representation of all of us in the garden. In Adam, we all fall. And in Christ, when we, in, this, in a similar way that we, that we identify with Adam going backwards through our, through our lineage, in Christ, when we place faith in him, he is then our full representative. Right? And he stands like the high priest representing us before God who dies for our sins. Um, but there are other reasons why Jesus had to be divine. And so one of them might be the resurrection. And so Jesus's death was allowed, was enabled because he, he was human, but his resurrection was guaranteed because he's divine. It, Hebrews says the death could not hold him. Like it, it simply was impossible for Jesus to be kept by death. He overpowered it with his divine nature. Uh, Jesus also had to be perfectly holy in order to be our sin offering and sacrifice. Um, nobody, nobody does this other than God. Nobody is that holy other than God. And so I wouldn't suspect that anybody could. But let me let me say one more thing about your question, Jonathan, from Uganda. It says, um, was it necessary for Jesus to be fully divine? Um, 
that word fully divine is interesting because what what less is there? Like the, the chasm between Jesus is God in the flesh versus Jesus is almost God. Like there's no almost God. Like there's an infinite difference between God and everything else. Who is like you, O Lord? None in all the earth. And so Jesus is either really truly God or he's not. And that's a that's a, that's such a huge difference. Now, if we're gonna throw out a theory. Is it possible that Jesus could have been a perfect, that any human could have lived a perfect and sinless life and then died for us and become the savior of all? Um, I think that there's there's a pro, there's a few problems with this. One is these kinds of hypotheticals are, um, they lead us in strange places. And hypothetical questions are like that. They can often lead you into a, a, a strange and unhealthy place with your hypothetical question. Hmm. If I was going to try to get a second wife, who would I pick? Right? This is like a bad, this is an evil hypothetical. And hypotheticals can lead you into places that are not healthy. And this is one of those types of things. Um, it can potentially cause that problem. I I do think, though, that what we know is this. Jesus himself is like, hey, there's no other way. Everyone has sinned and fallen short. It seems clear in Scripture that no human could, would, ever you know, be that sinless sacrifice, let alone be sinless. No human would even be able to simply stand on his own power. And so there, it seems that the word impossible would fit here for the most part, that Jesus, his divine nature is part of his divine character, which is why he lives sinlessly. And so it would seem to be an essential part of our salvation is Jesus's divinity. I just don't know that he had to be divine to be a sin bearer but maybe he had to be divine to be a quali qualified to become a sin bearer by being so holy. So maybe the answer is yes anyways. Maybe that's what Wayne Gruden was getting at. I don't know. I'll go to the next question. Interesting things to think about. Michael S. says, what is your interpretation of the fourth kingdom made of iron and clay in Daniel 2? <laughs> I don't know, man. Daniel 2. So in this passage, what we've got is um, these four kingdoms. And so three of them, we know historically who they are. And I, I actually, I won't go over it all now, but I've got it in my um, in my uh, my videos on evidence for the Bible. That's that I'll put that playlist in the description below. Evidence for the Bible, and in the playlist, I talk about Daniel chapter two and these these three of the four kingdoms. And when I get to the fourth kingdom, right, we, we talk about like okay, like one was um, uh, say Alexander the Great, and who's like this 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 speedy growth kingdom and stuff. It actually fits historically, really interesting. Um, some skeptics will say Daniel 2 so fits the history up until like 160 um, BC that that's one of the reasons why they think it was written after that fact. Now, I, I don't think it was written later. I, I have a I, I have a video where I build a case for why it was not written, why it was written when the Bible thinks it was written. <laughs> um, but it's interesting. It's accurate enough that they go, yeah, that's evidence that it's written after the fact. That, that's kind of a backwards admission of the accuracy of the prophecy here. However... The fourth kingdom is, is a huge mystery to me. And so uh, I'm just putting it on your screen here. But um, but man, uh, the fourth kingdom is just, I don't know. I've heard lots of stuff over time. I've heard that the fourth kingdom is is a, um, a, a revived Roman empire. Others have, you know, and they have these toes of iron and clay. And so this represents it not having the power that the original Romans had. And there's sort of, it's sort of an amalgamation of basically areas where Rome had power are being sort of brought back together. And they, 
And then, and then people even give a timeline on it, or they'll say it's the European Union because, it, oh, at one point it was 10 nations in the European Union. And it's like the 10 toes, 10 nations. Well, it's not 10 nations anymore, and so they don't say that anymore. And this gets us into the problem. When prophecy's already fulfilled, it's not that difficult to see how it was fulfilled. When it has yet to be fulfilled, and we don't even know the timeline. Like, I don't know if it'll be fulfilled in 10 years or 1,000 years. And you might be like, Mike, that sounds crazy, 1,000 years. If you lived in 1,000 BC, you would also think it sounded crazy that it might be over 1,000 years before Jesus returns. And I, just, I just want to recognize that. It could be for all I know. It could be tomorrow that all the craziness begins, or it could be 1,000 years from now. I, I just don't know. Um, that being said, what I end up doing is, and here's the problem with um, trying to predict unfulfilled prophecy when it's going to happen yet to be fulfilled prophecy is that all I have to go with is my current events. Like I, I don't, I don't see what happens 10 years from now, hundred years from now. I just see sort of the current events. And so what I inevitably do is I grab the text of scripture. This is why I don't give you my answer on Daniel two. I grab the text of scripture, these 10 toes, and I start looking at current events on how this can be fulfilled. Inevitably this most of the time, I should say this causes me to predict current day things to be the thing that I'm reading about in Daniel. If you did this in 1000 AD, you'd be wrong. If you did it in 1500 AD, you would have been wrong. If you did it in the 1800s, you would have been wrong. If you do it now, why would I think I'm going to be right? I just don't know. So I, I'm not sure. Um, often prophecy is not written so that you can predict what will happen, but written so that when it happens, you will know that God predicted it. And it's written in such a way that you go, wow, Lord, you're still in control. God, you are sovereign over the nations. And in the chaos, it's interesting how prophecy often gives you the chaos and the horror of the world. It tells you these horrible things are going to happen. Partly because when when those that generation is who's in the middle of all that chaos and horror, when they look at scripture, they can. one of the reasons is they can go, God, you're good. You're still in control. Just as you told me this chaos and this horror was going to happen, you've told me about the glory and the blessings that are coming. And I place my faith and trust in that as well. So that I I, uh, I don't venture into this area. You're welcome to. It's fine to do it as a conjecture. I just wouldn't be too confident in your answers. And if you want to get humility when it comes to uh, prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet, read stuff from the 60s. Read stuff from the 70s, 1970s, 1960s that people said about these passages. And ask yourself how confident they felt. Um, that might give us some perspective. Question number four, and we're full on questions. I got all twenty for today. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Happy New Year, by the way. Nice to uh, nice to be back doing the Q and As and getting a little bit into the swing of things. I'm still dealing with long COVID, apparently, um, but uh, I'm hoping to. I mean. I just for a quick update on that, I have to, according to the doctors and stuff, I just need to rest. We think it's long COVID. There's no way to confirm it, right? We just rule out things by test. You rule out everything else. And the timeline, and I did have COVID, so it does fit. But all there is to do is just rest and take it easy. Um, and when I feel like the relapse of going back into sort of being wiped out for days, that um, that I, I just pull off. I pull off before that point is the idea. And then hopefully it resolves itself finally. It's just, it's just been a cycle over and over and over again, this work too much and then be wiped out and then work too much. So I'm trying to avoid that. Uh, Jacob Nilsson says, it may be a simple question, but why did God create humans? I'd be happy to get your insight. He didn't need to, or did he? God bless. 
Um, did God need to? I, I actually once heard a, a leader say, God made humans because he was lonely. And this is why you not only need leaders who have, I'm just being completely honest, who have compassion for people and who are caring for individuals, but you also need leaders who are intelligent people. <laughs> they have to be intelligent, not hyper intelligent, just the kinds of people who think about the stuff they say out loud. Um, God was lonely. I mean, not if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity <laughs> and the amazing and perfect love that God has within himself. So did God need to make humans? Like, no, uh, he didn't need to. There's nothing in scripture that suggests he needed to. Um, but that doesn't mean he didn't have reasons for making humans. So compare, for instance, why God made humans in scripture to like pagan deities and their relationship with humans. So in some pagan beliefs back from biblical times, it was believed that pagan these pagan gods had created humans um, either by accident or as a slave race. And then they smite the humans because lots of these pagan beliefs have their flood stories. They smite the humans, destroy the humans um, with a flood or something like that because they're too noisy. So they were made as like slaves to just be a workforce and then they were smitten because they were just too noisy. You're, just, you're annoying. You're just annoying. Now, the older I get, okay, the more I identify with this motive of just thinking people are annoying, right? It's the, it's the danger of becoming an old, bitter individual, which, of course, I'm completely capable of becoming, <coughs> but by the grace of God. Um, I, so I understand that motivation. I'm being facetious, okay. But the, um, the, the biblical example is very different. So God creates this amazing garden and this amazing land, this amazing planet, and he plants man in it and he's like, tend the garden. And then he gives him dominion over it. I want you to be the boss. I want you to be in charge and you'll be my image. So this seems like he's created man to be this exalted image bearer of God over creation with dominion. This just seems to be an act of um, God showing his creativity, God showing his power, but not just that. Because why would we bear his image if it was just about those things? It's also God showing his love and his desire to know us the amazing quality of this God himself wants to know you like he knows all about you but he wants to intimately have a relationship with you this blows my mind and when you look at the redemption of man you see that this is what we're redeemed to we're redeemed to being back in charge of the earth in, a re in resurrected bodies glorified bodies and with this incredible intimacy connection personal and deep social connection with God where he is, he's the light permeating the whole city and there isn't, you don't even need a sun. doesn't say there is no sun. It says there's no need of sun, as in, uh, with all these lights in my room, I don't need the sun either. It, it, it doesn't mean there is no sun. <laughs> so there is, God himself is the light. He's with us and he, he, he enters us, into us. So if you look at the whole story biblically, you go, okay, man was created, obviously, to rule creation, but, but to do so as the image of God in connection with God. He's walking with Adam in the Garden of Eden. This is relational. Sin breaks the relationship. Sin ruins the, our dominion and uh, the, the the connection we have with the earth, but especially with God, and even brings us death. And it hurts our relationship with each other, right? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. Even, even interhuman relationships are damaged. Jesus comes and restores this, restores our relationship with God, restores holiness into our lives, restores our dominion ultimately over the planet, which we're waiting on. And, and and brings us um, all those things. So why did God make us was because he's showing his creativity, 
his holiness, his love. Also, he redeems us, so he shows us mercy, his graciousness, his long-suffering attitude. And so he made us because he is wonderful. And so he did a wonderful thing that has a wonderful end. Now, he also shows his wrath and his judgment, which are both good things through the way he judges the world. And the Bible is very clear about this, that God's wrath, it is not the tantrum of an angry child. His wrath is good and proper and holy and right. And so even those who reject the glory and the fellowship with God and holiness, they will experience something that brings glory to God in the end. And so there's a demonstration, a display of God's glorious power, but it's not just that because he could do that without having a relationship with us. He does that too. So we were made to know him. Just, yeah, those are some of the reasons. I'm sure there's others that I haven't thought of. (laughs) Number five, Caleb McMurtry says, hi, Pastor Mike. Hi, Caleb. Uh, Should Christians ever concern themselves with ideas like the butterfly effect, the idea that tiny choices may have big impacts on history? Thank you for your ministry. Um, Caleb, I think yes and no. The, The two sides of the coin, my answer here is, Uh, Yes, concern yourself with your tiny actions. And no, do not worry about the butterfly effect, it having this sort of compounding effect. Because I feel that you, it's just foolish to sit and worry and think about how little tiny things I do might, like if if I take my little fan remote and I put it here, maybe World War III will start in a couple of years. For all I know, well, I mean, this is, this, the, I'm worried people will move into this sort of paralyzing paranoia if they start worrying about every little action or this kind of like, it'll lean into like an OCD type mentality where, um, although OCD people don't do it for these reasons usually, but it could lead into that where you, you start doing little things and little ticks and little habits because you feel unsafe if you don't do them. That's not healthy. On the other hand, Jesus says we'll be judged for every idle word. Not that we're worried about what impact it will have a hundred years from now or something, but I'm, I'm still, it's important that every word I say matters. Every thought I think matters. Every action I take matters. Every minute of my day actually matters. I'm really bad at this because, um, it doesn't come natural to me at all to be so concerned with every moment. And I don't want to become paranoid again, but I want to see the value of little things, things that seem little, they're actually very valuable. The, 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 the properness of my behavior at all times actually matters. And so great place to focus on is your words. The things you say and don't say to people, that's a wonderful thing for you to be very particular about and care a lot about. Yeah. Um, which is not really common in our day. Um, all right. Question number six, Eric Stensred McBoo. That's I'm not calling. He's not my McBoo. Okay. Eric, I'm just reading your name from YouTube. I showed, it says, I showed some LDS members your Book of Abraham video, but because they believe they heard from the Holy Spirit, biblical arguments haven't worked. How can I show that they haven't heard the Spirit? That's a tough question. Um, <clears throat> I had a conversation with some LDS missionaries once at my door, and they were, we were talking about this, and I hit the same wall that you've hit, Eric McBoo. Um, it was uh, it was them seeing evidence and evidence and evidence and finally bearing te- their testimony, which I use that term because that's a special term in LDS circles when you bear your testimony. Well, I prayed and it's something like this. It's like I prayed, you know, and God, God showed to me, the Holy Spirit revealed to me that 
that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God, you know, the Book of Mormon is true. This is usually the, the two things they want to bear in their testimony. And when they consider the bearing these statements to be a power move. Okay, I, I don't know what else to, what other word to use to describe it. And it's, and, and they're in an environment where they've been coached to doing this, bearing their testimonies, not only meant to be a statement of, I'm going to stick here, it's also meant to provoke more faith in them when they need it. And um, according to, I actually have a video on this somewhere. Don't know what it's called. Um, <clears throat> maybe it's in my two hours on Mormonism video. Maybe. I don't know. <coughs> um, so then I asked him this question. I said, well, let me, I was just trying to fish and find out, like, what do they care about? Because if evidence doesn't matter, if like I can prove that Joseph Smith was a fraud using actual evidence from the book of Abraham, for those who don't know, and I have a video on this, just you know, I'll, I'll link it below after the stream, but look for, you know, Mike Winger, Book of Abraham. Uh, Joseph Smith found this ancient Egyptian scroll, said that, bought it from someone. And then he said that it was the Book of Abraham, a book that Abraham himself had written. And long story short, they've, ex Egyptologists nowadays, okay, the, this is before the Rosetta Stone had been popularized, not the software, the actual Rosetta Stone that unlocked the Egyptian language. So Egyptian was largely, for most people, especially Joseph Smith, is just a big mystery. So he pretended to translate it. Later, when they were able to analyze the scroll, they proved it was actually the Egyptian Book of the Dead. It had nothing to do with Abraham. And then when you look at the translation notes that Joseph Smith has, which they've published, like Mormon sources have published these, you can see he has no idea what he's doing with Egyptian. He'll translate one little Egyptian thing to mean lots of things. So then in response to this, the LDS church goes, well, he had the gift of interpretation. And... And Christians go, well, he's obviously not interpreting. He's making stuff up. They go, no, no. The gift of interpretation has another angle that you guys didn't know about. You can interpret one little symbol to mean lots of things. You can interpret it to mean things that maybe nobody ever knew it meant, not even the guy that wrote it. Um, right. That's what you call <laughs> lying. <laughs> um, so they didn't They didn't care. Just like, uh, you know, your, your guy moved on to his testimony. So I asked him the following question. I said, and see if I can remember how I put it, uh, it was something like, let's suppose the Mormon church told you one thing. The Bible told you something totally different. And, the, and, and this is my hypothetical. Don't fight me here. Just pretend that you're in the situation where the Mormon church tells you one thing. The Bible tells you something that contradicts that explicitly. And, and third element, your inner perception of the Holy Spirit tells you something totally different. Now, they all three can't be true. Only one of them can be true. Do you trust the, the, the Mormon church, right? Because they have an apostle. They believe they're led by an apostle, by the apostles, um, the quorum of 12 and all that. And um, the Bible over here says something totally different. Then you're, you think the Holy Spirit's revealing something to you that's totally different. And then I asked him, which one do you trust? And both the missionaries I asked this, they said they would trust their internal awareness of the Holy Spirit, what they think the Holy Spirit's telling them. And I thought, wow. I said, so you don't actually trust the Mormon church or the Bible. You trust your perception of the Holy Spirit. And they were like, I guess. I mean, not that they don't trust the Mormon church at all or the Bible at all, but, but the primary thing, the thing that rules them all is sola internal Holy Spirita. <laughs> that's not how you say it. Um, but that, that's what they ultimately were relying on as their final authority. And so from that point, once you get them to acknowledge this, I think the next step is to start to ask whether this is a good way to go. Do you think there's been anybody who thought they heard from the Holy Spirit and were wrong? 
Yeah, they have to say yes, right? Okay, how would they know they were wrong? How would they have proven that they were wrong? And then you start asking these questions because you need to find a wedge. When they give you the, the information where they answer, like, I guess maybe they ask other people what they feel. Yeah, but what if those people are wrong? Oh, I don't know. Maybe, I mean, I, I guess they can like go to like someone more spiritual than them. Like, okay, who's the most spiritual? Oh, maybe, maybe like my, my bishop, my local bishop. Well, what about like the apostle Paul? Jesus? Jesus was pretty spiritual, right? Maybe we can go to him because everything he said was clearly led by the Spirit. And so you try to walk them back to the text of Scripture as being more authoritative than their internal voice because you could be mistaken. Um, you could even give them biblical examples of people who thought they were hearing from God, like go to the book of Jeremiah. These false prophets thought God was speaking to them, but he was not. And then how did they know Jeremiah was the real prophet? Because what he said came true. His prophecy got fulfilled. This is a bigger study, right? Read Jeremiah. So then the application is, hey, my Mormon friend, right? when when you feel you're hearing from the Holy Spirit, what you really want is a resource that has fulfilled prophecy to prove that that was what the Holy Spirit said. So how about we look at what we know the Holy Spirit says in Scripture instead of what you feel the Holy Spirit says inside your own heart? Because the Holy Spirit's completely reliable, but you're not, and you might be mistaken. Um, I'm getting worried. I, I moved my fan thing. I better put it back over here. That's whew, disaster avoided. Let's go to question number seven. Orville Stuckenmeyer. I, I, Orville, I love your... I, I think you should make caramel-coated popcorn uh, uh, for for a business. I just I want to buy Orville Stuckenmeyer caramel-coated or, or kettle corn, which is better. Just, just my two cents. All right, Orville, um, what were the apostles, when were the apostles saved? They didn't have the full knowledge of what Jesus was doing until his appearance after his resurrection. Could they be considered saved before Pentecost? Um, so <clears throat> I tend to use the term saved not to refer to people who are filled with the spirit, with the indwelling of the spirit, although most of them are, especially nowadays, um, but rather to refer to people who, if they die, they will be saved from judgment. And so I think the apostles were saved in that sense, probably from the moment they heard about Jesus or likely even before that, when they were believing with what John the Baptist was saying, uh, maybe before that, who knows, I don't know what their life was like, or if, if John had provoked real repentance and that was what prepared them for Christ. Um, cause most of the, the, those guys w were impacted by John the Baptist before they came to Jesus. So I would think at that point where they had a posture of repentance and faith, that that was when they were saved, but they were indwelt with the spirit after Pentecost or some of them when Jesus breathed on them, it seems in the gospel of John. Um, <clears throat> and so at those points they were indwelt with the spirit. So I think what we're really saying is this, is that being saved didn't include indwelling of the Holy spirit for, for everybody before Pentecost, but after Pentecost it did. And so you could be say with or without that, depending on where you're at on the timeline of history. But when the new covenant was initiated, God wants to demonstrate the betterness of faith in Christ versus the, the results of obedience to the law. And so the Holy Spirit is given because now it's like, hey, the law gave you my requirements and yeah, I'll bless you or curse you depending on your behavior. But you're not really getting relationship with me through this. With Jesus, you're getting intimate relationship with God. Your heart has been cleansed. You can actually be a vessel of the Holy Spirit now because what you were looking forward to, what was pictured in the law and all that is now the reality of it is now here in Christ. And so God wants to show the superiority of Christ 
Can't wait to get to the book of Hebrews later this year. We're going to go verse by verse through the book, talk about the superiority of Christ. Anyway, all right, let's look at number eight. The Lowry says, Philippians 3.15 says, God will reveal when our thinking is opposed to his calling. Um, okay, sorry. I got distracted by something. Okay, uh, God's, forgive me. Uh, Philippians 3.15, let me, let me go to the verse and then I'll read the question so you guys can have it in context there. I just, he's easily distracted. Okay, therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind on your screen. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Okay. God's, it says that God will reveal when our thinking is opposed to his calling. How do how then do so many dedicated Christians get all the way through life still utterly confused about essential moral issues? Oh, well, um, there's a couple things I want to say about this. And one would be just because God reveals something to you, it doesn't mean you're going to acknowledge it, receive it, learn from it. Um, and retain it. Like the, that, I think the scripture seems clear on this. And you, all you have to do is look at like the church in Laodicea. They had fallen. So, in, this is in Revelation three, I think it is, where Jesus writes this letter, has this letter written to Laodicea, and they've fallen so far from holiness and purity in their calling. Um, God had revealed things to them that they had later either rejected, selectively forgotten. Or decided, well, God told me not, but now that I'm mature and I know this and that, or, you know, I'm not going to think about it anymore. Whatever the reasons were, they, they just moved on. But also, does this text say that God will reveal everything to you? Uh, it says God will reveal this to you. What was the this? Let's back up. He goes, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul has an attitude of living for the sake of the kingdom of Christ, knowing that what he has ahead of him, he's not worried about what he gets in this life. He's worried about what he gets in eternal life. And he's going to keep pressing forward and serving the Lord, storing up treasures in heaven. And even his life, I do not count my myself to have apprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He has a... He is a Christian who cares about the kingdom and is living for eternity. Now, he wants those who are mature to have that same attitude. And if they think otherwise, God will reveal this to them. It's part of the, it's, in other words, uh, I think what he's simply saying is <clears throat> caring about eternal truths is part of the natural path of Christian maturity. Are you guaranteed to always get more mature as a Christian? No. But if you do get more mature as a Christian, this is one of the things that God will reveal to you, is the attitude of living for his kingdom and not for this world. There, Think about it this way for a second, if you just as a reminder, as encouragement to us all, is that there's a day when everything will be radically different. Like all of my daily activities that I'm doing now and my things where I'm worried about like retirement and I feel like I got a mortgage and I've got my car and I've, I've got my, my clothes and a, a hobby over here and a video game I like playing. All of this stuff will, will go through transition into heaven and into the eternal kingdom. And so much of it won't matter. And you're supposed to live now thinking about the stuff that will matter in the future, not just the stuff that feels like it matters now. Kids go through this all the time because the kid has his homework and he has his game console. One of them matters now. Game console. One of them will matter later. 
his homework. He's got his chores and he's got playing with his, with his friends or, or, or just goofing off, watching TV or something or YouTube. One of them matters now, playing, and one of them matters for his character, doing his chores, being a reliable and faithful person who chips in and isn't, isn't, isn't lazy. And so we need to look at things even more extremely than that as Christians, and that's the encouragement. <clears throat> Number nine, uh, She's Moonlight says, Have I made my crush an idol? I found myself crushing on a brother in Christ. I've also found that sometimes I prefer thinking about him more than God. I don't want to do this. Any advice? <coughs> Forget my coughing. I don't have my mute button set up yet. With uh, I forgot about it. I forgot lots of things. Um, so, she's Moonlight. Um, I'm trying to think of the best thoughtful way to give you an answer to your question. Um, Here's a test for when something becomes an idol is when it comes down to serving that thing or obtaining that thing or pleasing that thing or pleasing yourself with that thing, you would choose that over doing what God wants you to do. Are you there? Are you like, if my crush wanted to fornicate with me, I would do it if that meant I got to have a relationship with that guy. That's, that, that's similar to like idolatry. I'm placing this thing above God. But if you're thinking, I would I would honor God in that relationship. I, if God has that for me, then praise the Lord. And if not, then I trust him. Um, uh, if, if God is still the higher priority, that that's an important thing. But when you talk about a crush, those emotional crush feelings are temporary. And it's part of like, for most of us, it's a temporary part of life. Like you you feel those intense feelings. They're, they're not, nothing's wrong with it. But you don't let them control you. Don't let them control your life because they are crush feelings. We, we, I think most of us understand that they're um, reckless and they're not wise. They're not wise. The intensity of the crush is usually in exact proportion to the immaturity of the of the of the of the relationship you have with them or of the knowledge you have of them, the less you know about them, the more intense that crush will be, the more you learn about them. This is just, okay, this is not scripture speaking. I'll, I'll, I'll share a verse on this in a second, but this is my own personal life experience and having counseled youth many, many times. Um, the more you get to know these people, and if you were in a relationship, let's say you guys get married, you are not going to feel these crush feelings 10 years into your marriage. I do not mean you won't feel love a deeper love, appreciation, placing them uh, high in your life in a good way. I don't mean that. But the crush, the feelings we describe as crush, that will fade. Okay, so this is this is something you, you can't let crushes guide and direct all your behaviors. Um, just recognize them for what they are. They're fickle things. Um, yeah, but just, just make sure you want to obey God above all else. And even in that relationship, that would be my encouragement to you. It's understandable that your mind is just obsessively thinking about this person. That's not that uncommon. But don't let that mean it controls all your actions. So you still force yourself out of obedience and love to God to read the word and to, to do things that bring your mind onto the Lord. Um, but I wouldn't beat yourself too much over just having intense feelings. That's normal, but they'll, they won't last, um, which is fine. You have better feelings, more lasting feelings, and more selfless feelings that will replace them if you cultivate a real love relationship in the future. Um, Larry has a question. 
Oh, I oh back up, back up. Number nine. I said I would share a verse. So here's the verse. Um, Ecclesia, uh, not Ecclesiastes. Um, song of Solomon has this admonition. So it's it's simultaneously a love song, and it warns people about love, <laughs> and it does it a few times, um, where it says in the text, "I warn you, you know, daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up love until it pleases." And so here's an admonition for those who are. They're on the young side. They're nowhere near being ready to get married. And <clears throat> they have these crush feelings. My recommendation is don't, you know, it's okay that you got that, but don't stir it up. Don't feed into it. Don't don't make this way worse. Because love won't please yet. Love will not be able to be accomplished fully anytime soon. And so if you stir up all these things, you're going to be causing yourself a lot of heartache. You won't turn the switch on or off when you get a crush, but you can definitely feed the fire. All right. You can absolutely add fuel to the fire. And if you're nowhere remotely near having a serious relationship that is heading, uh, you know, step by step towards marriage, if you're nowhere in that zone, feeding this crush is seemingly an unhealthy thing for you. That would be my thought. Number 10, Larry says, is Genesis 129 allowing us to smoke weed and eat magic mushrooms because they're found naturally? Hasn't sin surely had a big impact post the fall on vegetation? Oh, man. Some of you will laugh. I have legit heard people say this and use it as their honest reason why they think it's okay to use drugs, various drugs. Genesis 129. God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So the way they interpret this is to say, I can eat everything. God's given me everything and therefore it's all acceptable to eat. I don't think that was the intention of the passage that God was saying every individual fruit is good for you to eat. I think the, the it was meant to be inclusive, not individuals, not individualistic about each specific. I, I'm giving you dominion over all of the earth. Right, whatever you see, you have it. There's one you don't. That's the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, right? But everything else you can have. <clears throat> but let's take these people's logic to its logical end. There are fruits that are poisonous; they will kill you. They will make you sick. By that logic, that uh, that I can I can use drugs because of this. I should be able to eat things that will kill me, and then t- and then say that it's right and good. And the minute you say, well, you can't just eat some poisonous fruit that's going to kill you. You can't feed it to your kid and, and kill them with it. The minute you say that, you have to recognize that there are fruits that are good for you and there are some that are bad for you. There are vegetables that are good for you and some that are bad for you. And and to my knowledge, um, yeah, uh, drugs fall into that category of ones that are generally bad for you. Unless you have some genuine medicinal reason for using some drug, um, if you're doing it to, to simply feel good. It's addictive. It's hallucinogenic. This is not the the Bible calls us to a sober mind, like it specifically instructs us to have sober minds. This is a very important teaching in Scripture. It says we can't be drunk with wine, right? So, if you can't get drunk with wine, how on earth is it that you can justify using hallucinogenic mushrooms? You can't. Here's the problem: the people I've seen who quote the Bible like this, they don't care. I'm just being honest with you all. The, the ones I've encountered personally. It doesn't matter. 
The moment they realize they've misused the scripture, they just move on. They keep doing the same thing. They don't care. They just grabbed this verse and used it however they wanted. The debate over over whether the Bible supports them or not is completely secondary. They're just doing it because you care about the Bible, not because they do. That's been my experience over and over when I've seen this discussion happen. So I think maybe a more important discussion would be this. Before you answer them when they ask you, well, doesn't the Bible say giving us every green herb to eat all the seeds? And I think what you could ask is, let's pretend the Bible did tell you not to use this drug. Would you listen? Don't debate them on Genesis 1 until they answer that question. If the Bible forbid you getting intoxicated, getting high, would you listen? And if they answer yes, then go to the scripture and, and show this and then show the, this, look up the word sober in the Bible and show them those verses. But if they say no, you need to have a different discussion that says, how interesting that even if God himself tells you not to, you're going to do it anyways. So then why do you bring up scripture like it supports you? It doesn't sound like you care what scripture says. Let's talk about this rebellion that you've got between you and God. That's, that's where I would hopefully go with those types of issues. Ricky Young has a question. What is the best biblical case against transgender behavior? Um, <clears throat> well, you know, for a Q&A, I don't usually have the time to offer you the best biblical case. Um, I can give you a few thoughts. If I sat down and had, you know, a few hours or a few days to sit with scripture and think about it, listen to what other people have to say about it, I could probably gather together uh, what at least I think is the best biblical case. I will say this. Um... There may be a wrong assumption, Ricky, in that we have to have a case against transgender in order for us to be against it instead of lacking a case for it. Because it's a big claim to say that a man is now a woman. That's a massive claim. Think about this. I have to have a case against that? What if nobody in history was saying that until today? That means I'm going to have silence on the issue, but likely everybody back then would have thought it was insanity. So what's your case for it? Where's the biblical case for transgenderism? That would be my first question. I'd like to see people build a case for it. Against it, you could go to Genesis and show that in the beginning, God made them male and female. That's how he made them. And then later on, in the roles of male and female, God assigned specific roles to males and females, both in marriage and in other areas too. Um, when the Bible instructs things to women to take that instruction, tell women to do this, tell men to do this, to take that instruction and then say, well, I'm a woman now too, even though you were made a male, you're just going to call yourself. That's definitely foreign to scripture. That doesn't fit. Um, another case for against transgenderism, maybe the strongest case for it is that love, uh, rejoices in the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Love rejoices in truth. The truth is you're not a woman. The truth is you're not a man. And and it hurts you to live in a delusion. So I'm not going to support that delusion because I care about you. Out of love for you and love for God and love does not delight in, in, in lies. Love rejoices in the truth. Scripture says, out of love for you, I want to tell you the truth. You're struggling with internal issues that are going on. It doesn't help to feed the delusion and ask you to lean into the, the lie of transgenderism. Instead, men were made men, women were made women. You should be a man, you should be a woman. That's how you were designed. 
it's the worst kind of body shaming transgenderism in, in, a, in a big way because it it doesn't just say like, oh, shame on you because you, you're, you look this way or that way. It's actually a self-shame that the very nature of, of every molecule or every cell in your body is is bad and something you, you reject. And you're going to live your life pretending it's not true. This is not healthy in any way, shape or form. Love rejoices in the truth. So there's a big case against that. So yeah, God makes them male and female. There's no examples of transgenderism. He tells in, in, in Deuteronomy, I believe it is, there's a, a specific instruction in the law. Uh, a man shall not wear anything that pertains to a woman, nor any nor a woman anything that pertains to a man. So whatever male clothing is in your society and female clothing, you're not to cross-dress these things. That's specifically in the law. Um, now, are we under the law? No. But the question is, why was it written? And I think the principle behind it was that God wants men to be men and women to be women. And there's, there's other verses we could probably bring in, but there's like three or four things that I think would be helpful for people. Number 12, um, Ephraim Valenciano says, can we say God died since Jesus died? Can we say Mary is the mother of God? Um, yes and no. So um, Jesus died and Jesus is God, right? So there's a sense in which I can say God died. And there's another sense in which I hesitate to say this. And it is because God never ceased to have life in himself. Jesus had life in himself. Uh, like Hebrew says, it was impossible for death to keep him because, because of his deity. And so he rose from the dead. Um, and so it could imply to people when you say God died, that there was a moment where, where God ceased to be. Where like God, Jesus, as who's, who's God, ceased to exist or something like that. And I would hesitate. So... Because there's a truth and a and a not truth that are mixed up in this phrase "God died," I would probably avoid using it to avoid the confusion. The phrase uh, "Mary is the mother of God" is actually really interesting. It has a history behind it. Initially, in the very early church, Mary as the mother of God was seen as a very important doctrinal statement about Jesus. So there were heresies about Jesus, like he he became God when he was baptized or some later time in his life. The, like adoptionist Christology or something that happens that he was adopted and became the son of God at his baptism. Um, and one of the ways of fighting against this was, was the doctrinal statement, Mary's the mother of God. It actually wasn't a statement about Mary at all. It was a statement about Jesus, that he was deity even in the womb. And that's something all of us would affirm. Uh, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic would all absolutely affirm that. But... Mary is the mother of God changed as Mariology in the church started to become more and more and more of a practice. And the, even the, the exaltation and even the worship of Mary, prayers to Mary and all this stuff. And even in the 1900s, desiring to, to many Catholics, a huge movement in the Catholic church, trying to make Mary co-redemptrix, that she's a, a participant in our very redemption. Uh, our salvation is partly owed to her. And things like that, and, and calling her the Queen of Heaven, and this exaltation of Mary beyond what's biblical, and when we, and then you get things like this, where when you say Mary's the mother of God, and that's one of the reasons why you pray to Mary, because even if God might, you know, turn down your 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 request, even if Jesus might turn down your request, He wouldn't turn down the request of His mother. So if you pray to Mary, and Mary talks to Jesus, His mom's gonna say it, and He's gonna agree. So your chances of getting your prayers answered through Mary are better than directly through Jesus. This is this is what some of the Catholic teach some of the Catholic teachers say, and um, and some of the Catholic prayers say. 
And this is why others, they stop and they go, whoa, when you say Mary's the mother of God, and that's a statement about the deity of Christ, I 100% agree. When you say Mary's the mother of God, and it's a statement about her relationship to God as though God looks to her and says, hello, mother. Um, Instead of the way Mary said about Jesus, he's my Lord. She called him her Lord. Um, then, then it's again problematic, which is why I don't use the phrase Mary's the mother of God either, because there's a historical goodness to it. And there's a convoluted and problematic usage of it since then. Um, so yeah, there, there's my opinion. Now, uh, the phrase God died, is that in scripture? Not, I mean, not to my knowledge off the top of my head, uh, Mary as the mother of God is, is that statement in scripture is Mary called the mother of God. I just call her the mother of Jesus. Um, is she called the mother of God? Is she given that kind of exalted position that m- modern Roman Catholics would give to her um, and many Orthodox? Uh, and the answer is no, not in scripture. That doesn't happen. That happened historically later and later and later in time. It, you can trace the historical development of this stuff and it happened late over time. And because of that, I would avoid the phrase. All right, let's go to the next question. Number 13, Nathaniel Ister says a pastor at a local Bible study wants me to add punctuation to a section of scripture that is just words to see multiple meanings. I feel uncomfortable with this. What are your thoughts on doing this? Um, I think Nathaniel that you're, you're okay to do this as long as you do it with, with humility, you're recognizing I'm not actually going to assume my punctuation is right. I'm just doing an exercise to teach me the value of punctuation. That's it. You can also recognize that punctuation commas and stuff like that. Like you don't actually get those in the Greek. Those are added by the translators. So they look at syntax to figure out where to put the punctuation, which is a very challenging thing to do in Greek. I I can't do it. Um, That's where uh, the, you know, we, we lean on others for that kind of work. But if you look at this as an exercise, just to demonstrate to you the value of punctuation and how punctuation can change meanings, as long as you don't use this as permission to move punctuation around in your Bible. Oh, well, if I put the comma here, it changes the meaning. I think I'll just do that. I like that better. Well, that would be, um, unless you have good Greek or Hebrew grounding for moving that punctuation around, you, you shouldn't do that. As an exercise, sure, but not as a way of actually changing the meaning of a text. That would be a major problem. My, my two cents for you, Nathaniel, something to think about. Number 14, Erica Hughes says, because it is a fruit of the spirit, um, self-control, Oh, let me read that one. I messed up in the way I read your question. Because it is a fruit of the Spirit, is self-control a teachable skill, like in Titus 2, or a gift of the Spirit? What practical advice do you give to some to to get more emotional and verbal self-control? Okay, so I, I think that the, Erica, that maybe the answer to your question is just simply it's not either or. It's self-control is not um, merely a practiced or teachable skill. And it is not merely a gift of the spirit. It is something that you can teach others to have, or at least try to teach them to have. You can instill it in them through discipline. And you can also have increased self-control simply as the work of the spirit in your life. This is doesn't seem like an either or situation to me. It seems like a both and. And Titus 2, like you says, it says that the older women should teach the younger women to be self-controlled. And so, yeah, self-control is something you can actually teach. You say, hey, don't do that. Do this. You're just instructing them on what is right and wrong, making them aware, self-aware of things they're doing. This is a, a lot of times being discipled is just self creating self-awareness in other people, right? Where you, you just say, um, so when did you, when's the last time you read the Bible? And they go, oh, it's like two weeks ago. Like you're just, you're just creating a self-awareness in them 
um, where they were kind of ignoring and not thinking and not dealing with it. Or you tell, you know, they tell you a story, I did this and that and this and that. And then they go, and you ask them, what do you think your motives were for doing that? And you go, oh, well, I think I was just irritated. <laughs> and you go, okay, okay. You're just trying to create that awareness. Uh, at any rate, so it can be both. What practical advice do you give to get more emotional and verbal self-control? Um, I think the James advice is the best. Um, let's go there. James chapter 1, and we can look at verse 19. <coughs> says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That would be some great advice. Quick to hear. Often we're not listening very carefully. When people talk, we aren't listening carefully. When they do speak, we're just thinking about what we're going to say next. So one of the things for self-control is quick to hear. Hearing people. Maybe they're telling me something that's a little uncomfortable. Don't push it out. We, we in a, a tiny microsecond, we will... Is that a word? Microsecond? What am I trying to say? In a little tiny moment, in an infinitesimal microsecondal piece of time in a in a plank time there we go there's an actual word in a plank time we will rule out what someone's telling us because we don't like what what they're saying we don't enjoy what they're saying it, it's confrontive it's unpleasant it's it's not what you wanted to deal with or hear and so be quick to hear first thing be quick to hear what does that mean how do i apply that well if you care about it you will find ways to apply it this is this is this is something that's not that hard to do not that hard to understand i should say is you just spend more time listening, listen carefully. This also means that maybe you'll ask questions of people instead of just moving on from what they say. You'll be slow to speak. Um, hashtag no filter. Uh, that is not a biblical thing at all. Being slow to speak is entirely very much about self-control. James 3 will go on to say, if anyone uh, cannot control the tongue, he can't control his whole body. If he can control his tongue, rather, he can control his whole body. So, you being slow to speak is a massive area. It's a big win in the self-control department when you learn to slow down and not say stuff right away when you think it. Not say things out of impulse, but say them out of consideration. The way you do this is don't talk until you've had a chance to think about what you're going to say. I remember learning this practice. Not that I'm great at it, but but I do remember a big shift in my in my life where I was reading James and I was like a teenager and I thought slow to speak and I started trying to think before I talked every time and it was a weird I mean it really changed my life like legitimately changed my actual life because I just didn't say things right away and I started learning to not say things just because I thought they were funny I, maybe I need to relearn this sometime <laughs> yeah I probably do I'm, I'm receiving this today um, where I just would say something that was like I thought was funny or entertaining or whatever but it was not necessarily appropriate it was not necessarily the right time or it was not a, a thoughtful use or good use of humor um, and also be slow to anger. So self-control will get overruled very quickly if you're impulsive and you have no filter, but also if you just get angry. The moment you get angry, you got to slow down. Don't be quick. To, slow to anger. Apply this when you're driving down the street. Apply this when you have tiny inconveniences that just get you a little bit bothered and you get overreacted. Uh, you overreact. Oh, that person is horrible. You know, be slow to anger. Why? Because your anger does not produce the righteousness of God. 
When God's angry, he does the right thing. He does. He brings righteousness down. Even when he brings his hammer down, it's righteous. When I get angry, it's not righteous. I don't do the right things. I don't handle it perfectly. I overreact. I am unreflective and I, hurt, I harm others. So self-control could be in those regards. Other areas of self-control would be self-control in the food you eat, not eating too much of it, not eating too much unhealthy food. That's a, a self-control area. Uh, another self-control area is spiritual disciplines. So being in the word, being in prayer, there's other self-control areas. They're all things that probably people who struggle with self-control, they don't want to hear, don't want to do. If you just buckle down and do it, you will develop more self-control because self-control is kind of like a muscle. You get more of it as you do it more. So let's do the next question. <coughs> 15. Lamington says most Christians have a moment where they break down and weep as they realize what Jesus did for them on the cross. Is it normal not to have experienced this? I'm grateful, but also weirdly indifferent. Um, Lamington, here's my question to you. Are you weirdly indifferent about everything? And if your answer is yes, then I would say don't worry about it. That's just the way you are. If your answer is no, I break down over all sorts of things, but not this, then there is some amazing reality of the of the death of Christ for your sins that you are not recognizing yet, that it hasn't sunk in yet. And you need to do some work on that. So if you're, I just am, I'm kind of an indifferent, I'm a stoic person. That's the way I am. And that's the way you are. Like, we'll put it this way. Maybe you, maybe your, your scale doesn't go one to 10. Maybe it only goes from like one to four. Well, as long as you're getting to four, when it comes to the, the, the incredible grace and, and love and the, the depth of the, the, the death of Jesus Christ for you, get to the top of your scale. And if your scale only goes to seven, the, that's as emotional as you get about anything, then at least get to seven on the death of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm suggesting. Um, and if not, then, uh, then yeah, there's, there's, there's some lack of appreciation. How do you develop more appreciation for the death uh, and the sacrifice of Christ and what he's done for you? You develop more awareness of your sin, right? And that has to do with repenting of sins, actually acknowledging and repenting of them, um, openly before the Lord. It also has to do with reading scripture so you understand what holiness is. But also looking at and re-looking at what Jesus went through for you. Um, not as a way of just provoking emotions, but as a way of provoking understanding. Because in my thought is you can do it where you're just trying to stir up emotions and I don't think that's super healthy, my opinion. But there's a way to do it that's about stirring up understanding and understanding tends to stir up those emotions. Go on a study where you try to figure out what Jesus went through on the cross spiritually as the shame and guilt of the world fell upon his shoulders. And start thinking about that. I'm saying pursue deeper understanding of what Jesus did for you on the cross. If, if that's something that might bless you, help you, draw you closer. <clears throat> help me Jesus has a question says I have difficulty reading the Bible and I think that listening to the Bible like an audio might be helpful but I feel like I'm missing something by not reading it any thoughts um no I mean well yeah, I have thoughts but, uh no thoughts next question here's what I'd say <coughs> listening to the Bible is how a lot of people have received it throughout history because not everybody was able to read and even when everybody could read Rarely would you be in a room where everybody had their own Bible. In Scripture, 
you have Jesus going to the synagogue and he reads in, in Nazareth and he reads a section of Luke out loud and he says, uh, a section of Luke, in the, in the book of Luke it's recorded, he reads a section of Isaiah out loud and then he says, it applies to me. That was the scripture reading for the time. They went and read to the public. This is this was a pretty normal way. Um, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, when God gave the laws to Israel, there's a time where they gather to hear and receive these laws. I think it's in Ezra. And uh, it could be Nehemiah. I think, I don't remember now, it's one or the other. And <clears throat> they read out loud the words of the book of the law to all the people. And then the Levites are around and they're there to explain the meaning of it to the people in different circles. So public reading of scripture is in, is incredibly biblical. Having it read to you is incredibly biblical. There's nothing wrong with it. We sometimes get obsessed over the medium more than the, the thing we're actually receiving. And so whether you do public reading, private reading, reading out loud, having someone read to you, listening to audio, I think the thing is you're receiving the word of God in scripture. Now you might find you don't pay as, pay attention as easily when you're just listening versus when you're reading. So maybe for you, reading is better. But maybe for you, you find listening, you receive more, you you listen more, you consume more, so that would be better for you. I, I, I think these are all tools on the table for how we consume the Word of God. And you should just use any of the, any and all of them that, that seem to help you the most. Rachel Collier says, is correcting your parents biblical? What do you do if they do not respect correction? <clears throat> Well, Rachel, um, correcting your parents is biblical. I think the question is how you correct them. Do you correct them with harshness? Do you correct them with humility? Do you correct them while being recognizing your position with them and showing them respect and do, or is it like, ha, I got you this time. You're wrong. I'm right on this one. That's petty. That would be the correction wasn't necessarily wrong, but the method was wrong. And the second thing to consider was, is, um, is this correction worthwhile? Am I bringing correction that actually has value to it? Um, I don't correct everything I see in people and they don't correct everything they see in me. Imagine my marriage if me and my wife both tried to correct everything that we saw that the other person did that we thought was uh, that wasn't as good as it could have been. <laughs> um, that would be a problem. Um, so I would recommend not doing that and, and let correction be because it's important. But you asked this also, you said, hey, um, what do I do if they don't respect correction? Um, <clears throat> let me share this verse with you real quick though. I think it's first Timothy five. Ah, here we go. Here we go. This applies to parents. Um, yeah. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's a thought in, in biblically speaking, Paul's telling Timothy, when you have to bring correction, rebuke to an older man, uh, don't just rebuke him. Even though what you're bringing is correction, you're telling him they're wrong, bring it in the form of encouragement as if he was your father. This is in a climate where Paul knows that you just don't talk to your dad the way that you talk to your buddy. And he says, talk to these older people the way you talk to your dad. Because it's inherently assumed that Timothy would, would never talk to his dad harshly. Be like, dad, you're just wrong here. But instead would bring it with encouragement. He would bring it with humility. He would bring it with an attitude of submission. And he goes, try to do that when you have to correct an older gentleman. Timothy, who was younger, especially. And then older women as mothers. Same is true for mothers. So there's a gentleness and a respect that's there that we want to have when we bring correction to our parents when it's necessary. 
Um, the other thing you said that was, what do I do if they don't respond? What, what if my parents don't care um, and they, they don't respond to correction? <clears throat> um, that's not on you. You just, your job was to bring the correction. Your job isn't to actually make them correct. It's just to bring it and then they deal with it and it's between them and the Lord. And I do think that if you have people who repeatedly reject your correction over and over again, they reject it. And all it does is create chaos in the relationship is that it's okay to just say, all right, you're on your own. You, you, you've made it very clear. You don't want to hear my correction. If I see a, a, an open door one day, a big emergency, I'll, I'll bring, I'll bring it again. But otherwise there's no fruit in it. And we can do this. We, we, we will, you know, if, if we're the, in the bad guy situation here, if I'm the bad guy here, I can train everyone around me that they all know they can't bring me correction because I respond so badly to it. And that's a danger. You don't want to train people that way. But if you're in that situation and these people are treating you this way, even God leaves people alone after a while. And so um, doesn't mean he doesn't continue reaching out to them. But the kinds of correction that are brought, it, there's a time where you can say, okay, I'm not going to keep laboring over this fruitless thing. I'm going to come back to it later, once in a while, but not all the time. All right, number 18, Kimberly Murray says, what does it mean practically that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things? Okay, three of those I think I get. Um, um, at least two of them I get. One of them, uh, two, one or two of them I struggle with too. Okay, so let's talk about it. In the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, giving us the description of love, it's poetic, it's beautiful, it's amazing, it's lofty. Uh, it's read at weddings for a reason, right? Rightly so. It says that love does certain things and doesn't do certain things. It doesn't rejoice in evil or iniquity, right? So so when you go, well, we're sitting together because I love him. Oh, well, if something's wrong with your love because love doesn't do that. Um, but love bears all things. I take this to mean um, I'm going to bear your burdens. You're struggling and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to carry that too. I'm going to bear your burden with you. Whatever you're going through, whatever your hardship is, you're not alone in it. I'm with you. That's what I think bearing all things is. I don't think it means like bearing abuse. I think it means carrying other people's burdens with them. I, I'm, I'm, I'm assisting you in this. You're not alone in the, in the difficulty and the suffering that you have. Love enduring all things. Um, I think that that has to do with just going through hardships, going through pains, going through sufferings. Um, God's love endures forever, includes him enduring the sin that people did against him and him still continuing to love them. And so love has a sense in which it's like, I will endure the suffering um, that you inflict upon me by your sins. And I'm not talking about someone being stuck in, an ab in, a, in a physically abusive or, or dr dramatically psychologically abusive relationship. So let's move on past that for a second. Cause here's what we hear all the time is, but what if it's this extreme scenario? Yeah, but you're not in that scenario, right? The vast majority of you guys, you're not in that scenario. Apply this to your situation. Love endures all things means that when your spouse, your family, they do something that hurts you, you don't shut them out and decide you don't love them anymore. You still love them. You still care about them. It's going to happen. Love endures all things. I think that's what it means. Love hopes all things. Here's another one. That's difficult because what does it mean? Um, well, I, I, I hope that they change. I'm just going to keep hoping and hoping. Um, I don't think biblically hope is meant to be used as wishful thinking. So I, I, I would reject that. Okay. I, I would say hoping all things doesn't mean I'm just going to wishful think at, you know, about the, the future and about everything and be naive about the real situation that my family is in or that the, my loved ones are in. I, I'm not going to use this hope all things to be delusional. However, hope 
biblically is about you're, you're hoping in things that are true, hoping in things that are that are promised in Scripture. And so love has hopes like my my hope, my confidence is that Jesus can forgive you for your sins. That Jesus has His arms reaching out to you. There's my hope. My my confidence is that this could be a healthy marriage. This could be a good relationship. And so I'm going to try to achieve that. I'm trying to push for that. So it has to do with moving in positive directions because you know positive truths. Maybe that's what hopes all things means. But believes all things. That's the one I struggle with. <clears throat> Love believes all things. I I just I'm not sure I understand what that what that phrase means. Um, I want to say maybe maybe because real love centers on God, that loving God first is the primary thing. That believing all things has to do with believing everything God has revealed, and that that belief in what God has revealed in the in the scriptures in the person of Jesus, um, or even individually to you, the the belief in all that God has revealed that is an expression of love. So so in a sense, my my trust in God and my belief in, in what He said that is an act of love. When I doubt the Lord, there's a there's a lack of love that's there. Not that I'm cast out for having any doubt, but that that is consequence of it that's possible i i just hesitate because i don't want people to think well my spouse lied to me about their drug use for 20 years but i'm supposed to believe all things and today they told me they're not using they're just going to be gone for the weekend and they're just going for a walk and they're gonna and they and they're not going on a binge that's not gonna happen i'm gonna believe all things that would seem to be contradictory to love rejoices in the truth <laughs> so um so i have a hard time applying believe all things to people i don't know please tell me your guy your guys opinions on this i'm not saying it doesn't make sense it makes sense i just am not entirely sure what it means so yeah number 19 macy dias says how as christians should we judge whether or not a secular show or movie is okay for us to watch or not thanks I struggle a bit with this one because movies and shows are as varied as they possibly could be. And any sort of pat rules I throw out there, um, they don't feel like they fit reality. And so I, I'm not sure how to answer this question, uh, to be honest, Macy. There's some things that are obvious. Um, if you're watching something that involves you sinning because you're simply watching it, you don't watch it. So like stuff that has like nudity and that kind of stuff, pornography in it, um, sex scenes and stuff like that in it. Uh, but what, but can you just skip it? Can you just skip the scene? Maybe, maybe you can just skip the scene. I'm not, I'm, I don't want to throw the rules out there for everybody on what to me feels like kind of a complicated issue. I do think there's the biggest issue is this is as a Christian, are you willing to say, I will, I will turn down any movie, game, music, whatever, entertainment, YouTube channel that I watch that I enjoy. I will, I will, I will shut any of them out, Lord, if it pleases you. I'm not saying you have to shut any of them out, but this is the biggest question to me is, would you, if the Lord was to reveal to you through your conscience, through the, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through scripture, that, hey, that's a problem. Would you actually cut it out or would you just keep doing it? That's the biggest question to be asked, to have a submitted and yielded heart. Then to ask the question of how do we judge whether or not a secular show or movie is okay for us to watch or not? Thanks. I, I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. Maybe one day I'll get more clarity on that. And, and just so you guys understand, um, some would think I'm just being a, a wimp, 
which I don't care if you think that, but um, it's it's really not that. It's not a lack of me having the courage of my convictions. Uh, this is simply the issue of these movies are so varied. Like I, I watched like uh, an episode of uh, of a show. I, I I hesitate to give examples because I don't want to be causing other people to have issues because there's there's many who would be like you you can't even watch TV of any kind. I don't care if it's Christian. TV's bad and. There's like so many varied conscience levels on these issues. It's hard. I'll put it this way. It's hard to make rules that apply widely to all believers on complicated issues. It's just difficult to make rules. So you go back to basic principles. But when you're applying those principles to really complicated issues, it's again difficult to make a blanket rule. So principle, don't compromise. Don't support things that are wicked. Don't put things before your eyes that cause you to stumble or, or, or someone you're with to stumble. Those are all true. How do I apply that to pick a secular show? How do I apply it to that? Right? Like Game of Thrones seemed easy. Oh yeah, I'm not going to watch that. Like it seemed really easy. And I probably, most Christians probably shouldn't watch that. It's difficult though to come up with an actual list of principles by which I will judge different shows. That if you have that list, send it on over. Um, I, I don't, I don't have it, unfortunately. Sorry. Manny Molina says, what's the best defense or response when defending the position that hell is not a present place, but instead a future place? Thank you, Pastor Mike, for your ministry. So Manny, uh, for, let me explain what, what this is. This is apparently a very contentious issue. I had a short that came out that's where I said, hey, uh, no one's in hell right now. And, and people, some people in the comments, and it was a short, so it's easy to misunderstand these little clips taken out of context. It's very easy to misunderstand them. I'm sorry. We, we learn as we go on how to make these shorts. And sometimes I've, I've made them and thought, yeah, that didn't really say what I thought it was saying because you didn't see the full context. Um, but this caused some people to be really concerned and think, hey, are you saying, are you like thinking everybody goes to heaven <laughs> or something like that? Um, <clears throat> biblically speaking, there's different words used talking about afterlife locations, right? So you have like Gehenna, Abuso. You have these different places. And Hades is one of them. Hades, we're not talking about Greek mythology here. We're talking about the, the Greek term and the biblical usage of the place called Hades. And I take Hades to be, and you can look at it, it seems consistent in scripture. Hades is where dead people would go, uh, basically since, since Christ's resurrection, where unsaved dead people will go for like a temporary holding location. This would be like being in jail versus being in prison. Jail is a temporary lockup. Prison is a long-term lockup. Um, so Hades is like that temporary thing. In Revelation, when you look at when Hades, and, and this is in the Greek, it says Hades. Not all translations do this. Some make it even worse because they'll, they'll translate, hell is cast into the lake of fire. But it doesn't say that. It says Hades, not, not, not hell and not these other terms. So when Hades is cast into the lake of fire, the end of Revelation, the final judgment, I take the lake of fire to refer to hell. It's my understanding of it. And people are free to try to work this out differently. But what I would say is um, maybe maybe it's best not to say uh, no one's in hell right now. Uh, maybe it's better to say people are in Hades right now. And one day they'll be in the lake of fire. But these aren't the same location. And, and so I, I would I would say Hades and hell are different things and that's how we should consider them and say yeah hell is a final judgment location Hades is a temporary holding place until final judgment 
And before the death of Christ, it seems that lots of people, good and bad, were in Hades, in different areas of Hades. One was an area of comfort. Another one was an area of, of unpleasantness, you know, torment, uh, you might say. And Jesus talks about this in his parable of Lazarus and the rich man. All right, but then after his death and resurrection, he took those who were waiting on the Messiah into the presence of God, waiting for final judgment to happen. That'd be my understanding of it. I, I don't know if that's going to help Manny. I, I didn't realize how pe- much, in my own experience, I put a little clip out on this and I was like, man, people got really, it just, it just got confused real quick. Not my intention, but I do think it's true that no one's in hell right now, depending on how you define the word hell. I think, which then, I think the biblical meaning of it would be more, yeah. Older translations and a lot of translations are, are sloppy. They'll, they'll translate these different Greek words in ways that confuse people. So it can be challenging. All right, we do have a bonus question for today. Brittany Howard says, can you explain the meaning of need the need more garlic shirt you were wearing a few weeks ago? Thanks and God bless you, Pastor Mike. Uh, well, thank you, Brittany. Uh, well, you see, garlic is a spiritual symbol for the Holy Spirit. And just as garlic should invade all foods, making them better, making them richer, making them tasty, so the Holy Spirit should... No, actually, it's just... Here's the truth about my shirts. I don't buy these shirts. This cat with glasses. My wife buys my shirts. When we first got married, we would go shopping together, right? And I'd go to the men's section, she'd go to the women's, we'd pick different clothes. and Then she would she would like go with me because she's better at this picking clothes stuff. After a while, I was just like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And I would just get what she liked. And then after a while, she started going alone. And I didn't even go shopping. And she would just buy clothes for me. And then she'd be like, what do you think of this? Or she'd send me pictures. This one, this one. I was like, yeah, great. I'll just study. You go shopping. That's perfect for me. Um, And now I will, it's gotten to the point now, after many years of marriage, where I just walk into my closet to put clothes on and there's a new shirt there. And it says, need more garlic. And I go, okay, I'll put it on. <laughs> My wife just buys shirts. So we sh- I like the shirts she buys. She buys fun shirts and cool shirts, and it's better than I would pick, and I don't want to be bothered looking for clothes. That's the truth. There you go, Brittany. That was so important. I'm glad that you guys were able to learn to think biblically about my shirts. Um, yeah. All right, but I will be with you guys um, for sure two weeks from today. For now, every other Friday, temporarily, while I'm still getting back up to speed, I'm still not back up to speed with, with my, my health and my ability to study and stuff. So I just need to take it a bit easy. Um, appreciate your prayers. The Lord will heal me in his time, which I I hope and pray is very soon. And otherwise been great to be with you. I'll see you in two weeks. Other than that, I'll put up some like short type thing videos going on and I'm working. I'm not even working on it really, but the next two videos in the women in ministry series, and then we're done. Uh, I'm not really able to work much on it at the moment, but I will be once my ability to do that improves so so yeah i love y'all thank you very much i I have nothing else to say i'm you know i'm just lingering because it's been so long since i've done a stream with you i'm enjoying it and I, i wish i i had more opportunity to do this but we'll get there all right you take care oh i was gonna pray i didn't forget um lord god we just thank you so much for your holy word we are all just students and your your word is our our teacher we pray that you would lead and guide us by the scriptures. Help us to be those who, in living our daily lives, we're about to do something, about to say something, about to decide something, where scripture just comes to our hearts and minds. That we would be guided by your word, where we're about to talk to someone or counsel with someone, and your word just enters into our hearts and minds so that we would be people who are practically, day by day, guided by scripture, 
so that when we correct, we immediately think of how to do it with gentleness and respect, or when we're about to speak, we think to be slow to speak. We think of Proverbs to guide and direct us. We pray that we would just be a people of Scripture, understanding theology and practice in just daily life in a biblical way. In Jesus' name, amen.